Joshua chapter number four. I do want to say that the ladies uh, at camp, they uh, came in second in the uh, soccer tournament. And uh, that was um, a big accomplishment, again, since they didn't know um, that they even had a soccer team. And uh, they, that Canaan had a soccer team, and so they became one, and they did very well. Just one point away from, uh, from, from tying, and uh, so they lost by one point. And then they won the cabin, uh, the cleanest cabin. They were sharing it with uh, another church, and it was... Uh, so that's a great thing. Parents know that they can clean their room. And um, so that award evidences that. And then they were all involved in music. Did a great job. Uh, you, we heard them last Sunday sing, and many of them had not sung a special uh, here. And, um, but that will change going forward uh, because they can. And so they did it. just a, a fantastic job. Very, very thankful. Their spirit attitude was wonderful. And uh, so tonight I want to just help us, uh, not just the teens, with going forward, but our families of the teens and our church family. And I think Joshua chapter 4 is a great passage that can help us with that. Also, glad to have the Shawks here. Pastor Bill Shawk is with us, heading to vacation, starting their vacation. And I apologize to him. I didn't recognize him this morning. It's not that you really don't look different than you did. I just was not expecting you to be here. And I take my glasses off, took them off a little bit more. And, um, and you were just blurry and with everybody else. And, but I, I failed. I feel, um, I feel uh, honored to have you here. We were in meetings with um, uh, the, the Brother Shawk um, in uh, North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina. And... Uh, Boy, it's probably 15 years ago, roughly, and so um, it just uh, is great to be able to see and being able to go on vacation, and I'm thankful you're able to do that, and we're glad you're here. And we were in school together. Um, Dr. Childs was our professor and, and, and preacher and drill sergeant and, and everything and all of those, right? And so he doesn't jump off the piano bench anymore. He trips over it, but he doesn't jump off it. But, and so it's just a great, great, great blessing. Uh, mine goes back to a lot of memories when you start going backwards and very thankful for those. Joshua 4, you ready? Let's stand together. And we're going to read this chapter and it's good that we do these things. I don't read as much as we should, uh, even in the congregational setting, but let's do this. I think it'll keep your attention. Joshua chapter number three. Remember the book of Joshua is that transition. Joshua is taking the hymn uh, where Moses left off, and and there there's it's another crossing with Moses. It was crossing of the Red Sea, and Joshua heading into this wonderful place of victory in Canaan. They've got to cross another body of water, and just a few months ago we saw the place. We saw that Jordan River, and we saw the place where it was suggested this is most likely the place where they crossed. There's another interesting thing. I, I've known it from reading it, but I didn't know it in making the connection. But this significant place, very significant to the people of God entering into the land and what they had before them, this was the same river where Jesus was baptized. 
and the significance that baptism has. Now remember, Jesus did not get baptized because of his salvation. He never got saved. Baptism is more than just a picture of salvation. It is an identifying with body of truth. And Jesus was submitting to the truth that John the Baptist was teaching. That was here in this same place. But here was a very treacherous time. The waters were overflowing. It was not still. It was not a place where you would have gone trout fishing. It was, it was very fast current. So much so they feared for their life if they stepped into the water. Joshua 3 is about the crossing. Joshua 3 and 4 kind of go together with different emphasis. Let's look at chapter 4 verse 1. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe, a man. And command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe, a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan. Take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial, a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan as the Lord spake unto Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the ark of the covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. Meaning the time that this was written. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua and the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over that the ark of the Lord passed over and the priest in the presence of the people. And the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses spake unto them. About 40,000 prepared for war, passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony that they come up out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. 
And it came to pass when the priests that bare the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until ye were passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. What a chapter. What a, a repetition to get us to see the emphasis. And tonight I want us to see the significance, what I believe is being emphasized here. God's people were delivered by God, parting the Red Sea, coming over on dry ground, under Moses' leadership, and under Joshua's leadership, God is reminding them, I'm still the same God. Amen. And God says, now the people before you, your fathers, they kind of forgot about me. They forgot what I did. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. I want to help you, Joshua, and I want to help my people so that we don't soon forget. A miracle such as that. A miracle. We, were, we saw the water, and it's hard for us to forget what we saw. We didn't see the miracle. They saw it. They experienced a miracle, but there's still a tendency to forget. So God said, we're going to set up a memorial. The key, the key to revival continuing in the lives of these young people and ours alike has everything to do with the follow-through. I want to preach tonight on the difference is in the follow-through. Thank you. Please be seated. In almost every sport, it seems that there's an emphasis on follow-through. It's a follow-through. I played football, and then I wrestled, and both of those, there were specific drills, specific moves, specific plays, where the coaches would say, you've got to follow through. You have to follow through. You have to follow through until the whistle blows. You have to follow through. Golf. I don't play golf, but one of the things I've heard often is, one of the keys to success is in the follow-through of the swing. Brother Cherry, is that right? Follow-through makes a difference, Brother Autry. How many play tennis? Any tennis players? Tennis, 
Is there such a need for follow-through? Yes. If follow, not following through is going to hinder a successful tennis run. Follow-through. But I think the Christian life is all about the follow-through. Remember again last Sunday, a healthy Christian focuses on daily. Meaning what? Meaning a good time in church and, and hearing and receiving is good, but there must be a follow-through. The young people heard Friday night from Pastor Jet that the, uh, he gave the illustration of track running uh, the, uh, uh, a, a lap around the, the track, a quarter of a mile. And we, we, we think of it as the start line, run the lap around and end at the finish line and it's over. And uh, camp ended Friday night. A service ends at the conclusion, the amen and the prayer. And Brother Gent pointed out, but in God's perspective, in our race, it doesn't end when the message is amen and we dismiss. It's really the beginning. And so the key to success is the following through what we do after that. You know, I feel like I've spent a lot of time looking for a spiritual experience where it didn't require too much follow through. I feel like I was looking at for many years for shortcuts in the Christian life where it didn't require follow through. I, I preferred to be born along effortlessly in the Christian walk, but that's not how it works. And some great spiritual experiences faded into nothingness in my life because I failed to follow through. You can listen to these testimonies, and, and if you've been around church long enough, you've heard kids give testimonies after camp, and you can conclude, I don't think it'll last. Well, of course it's not going to last, unless there's a follow-through. What God did for his people coming out of the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt and over the Red Sea on dry ground, that was real. And God's will was that they go into the land of Canaan, but they didn't follow through. And here we find under Joshua, they have to cross over this river. And these priests had to step down into the water before God parted it. And God didn't do the, the, the Jordan River like the Red Sea. He didn't part it. Then they walk over. He told them to step by faith. Leadership needed to step by faith. Moms and dads, uh, sometimes you're going to have to step into that, that raging torrent that is fast-paced. And the truth is, if that water did not stop, if God didn't do a miracle, it would have killed them. They knew that. This was a great step of faith. And so uh, there had to be this follow-through. And for many Christians, however, our Christian life is like sledding. Now, we don't do a lot of sledding around here. There's nothing to slide on except maybe mud or when we do the bubbles over there. We don't have much snow around here, but we just like to get on this, this sled and have somebody push you. And we just go careening down the hill, wind blowing people, passing by rapidly and until you get to where you start leveling out and there's, there, you need another push. And a lot of the Christian life seems that way. We just get this big push from God and we go careening down this hill and we're looking for the next mountaintop experience where somebody can push us over that. But the truth is what ends up happening is many Christians are just littered along the roadside of the race of faith 
hoping God will come along, give them a big push to propel them into another glorious experience. But, but countless Christians have this testimony of used to be turned on for God, used to be serving God. Most of them are there because they did not follow through. There was no follow through. And just as a lack of follow through is going to give you a lousy golf game and tennis game and, and many other kinds of, uh, of activities is going to be uh, uh, crippled if there's no follow through. Your Christian life and your faith in God is going to be shipwrecked if there's no follow through. The Bible has a lot to say about this. For example, Colossians 2, 6, Paul says, As ye therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. In fact, Paul says, after you receive Christ, there has to be a walk. There has to be reiterated steps. But he's also telling us how to walk after we get saved. And that is the same way you got saved by faith is the same way you take one step of faith and another step of faith and another step of faith applied to whatever it is. You say, I've got a lot of different things. The teens gave, some had three things and four things. All of those were simply a different articulation of a step of faith. Every one of these, it's a step of faith. And so we, we must understand that most uh, of our failures in the Christian life is a failure to follow through. Most of our public testimonies, it'll be a stress on a crisis experience. And crises exist, they're good. We, we heard about one this morning at Kadesh Barnea. It's a crisis. And many times our testimony has to do with a crisis. That's, that's why testimony, that's why it's good that we have these. But what happens is if you don't learn to follow through, you're going to stop even responding to God. Because you get to the point where you realize, I didn't follow through last time. I better shut up this time. But if God is working, we need to continue to cooperate with him and know the difference is not in the crisis. The difference is in our follow through. A lot of the old preachers used to say it this way. It's not how loud you shout or how high you jump, but it's how you walk when you hit the ground. They're talking about follow through. Again, our testimonies may focus on the crisis of what happened there. But Paul, if you read Paul's writings, his emphasis is upon the wall. After the crisis, the importance of follow through it's seen here in Joshua chapter four. And, and, uh, and in fact, only four chapters in Joshua deal with the actual entering of the land of Canaan. The other 20 chapters of Joshua, they talk about what to do after you enter the land of Canaan because it's the follow through. That makes a difference. And a very strange thing happened first because they're crossing at one of Canaan's most strongly fortified areas. About 40,000 of the Israelites, they entered the land dressed for battle, but fighting was not their first act. Though they were vulnerable at that location and they were ready to fight, we, we find. In fact, uh, in verse number, um, back over in verse number 13, they're ready to fight. They're dressed for battle. Uh, God ordered them, however, to stop in that exposed area 
and worship him. Worship him by erecting a memorial. Each tribe was directed to take a stone from the middle of the river, one for each of the 12 tribes, and set them up in their encampment. The place became known as Gilgal. It's a place of passage. The stones were probably placed in a circle, symbolized what God had done for his people that day. And the Israelites had a great crisis experience. And the strange circle of stones was their follow-through that guaranteed that the experience would last. Investigating the meaning of these stones, I think it will help us know what to do in our follow-through. Look at verse number 21. And he spake unto the children of saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, read the question with me. What mean these stones? What mean these stones? Let's find out what these stones do mean. I'll give you three thoughts about these stones. Number one, the stones were the evidence of a lasting experience. They were evidence of a lasting experience. Notice in verse 24, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God for how long? Forever. The stones were the evidence of a lasting experience. See, the monument of stones was there so that ye may fear the Lord forever. We come out of meetings with what point? So we can feel like we got our money's worth because we had a rock star preacher come in and just really preach the socks off of us? No. It's so that we could go into a deeper level of experiencing God forever. So that we will get past just a mountaintop, glory high, but that we can experience a daily walking and being able to say, the Lord is, present tense, my shepherd, I shall not want. See, the miracle of the Jordan was to have a permanent effect on Israel. There's no doubt that the mighty display of divine power produced instant reverence for the Lord. And what you're hearing from these young people is a, is a, a little bit more of a reverence and a little bit more uh, of a desire and a hunger for God coming right out of a, a week of emphasis of preaching about the things of God. And there is no doubt when God's people came through the Red Sea that there was a deep reverence for the Lord. But that experience was to be so deep and the experience was to be so intense that such reverence and experience would last forever. That was God's intention. And I must add that reverence was to be independent of God's miracles. In other words, if God had to keep performing miracles to sustain their reverence, their experience was defective. The experience was defective. See, it's impossible, however, to have a genuine encounter with God and remain the same. You heard some of them talk about spending time with God. In fact, Schuyler specifically mentioned that and, and, and can 
and I'm, and I'm proud of, of, of her giving a testimony, even though she may seem sheepish about, I struggled even giving a, uh, um, spending time with God, wasn't sure how to do it. But the truth is, there's not a person in here that that's not a battle and a challenge. In fact, Josh and Noah come in, my first meeting with them, Bible college students called to ministry, a meeting with them about their Christ Walk Journal, introducing them to Christ Walk Journal, making sure they're spending time with God because everything rises and falls on our experiencing God daily. It should, you shouldn't have to have the preaching of camp. We will take advantage of those when they come. You shouldn't have to have the preaching of a revival meeting. You shouldn't have to have camp meeting. You shouldn't have to have those things if you experience God. But all these other things are to point us to the fact that we can experience God and to, to tell us what we need to know about our blind spots that may be hindering us from experiencing God. And God is wanting this to be real. He wants it to last. And when you and I have a genuine encounter with God, I'm not talking about feelings. I know we, we, we conjure up what we think I mean, when we talk about encountering, I'm not talking about when, the, when you get so excited and, and, and uh, you just start having goosebumps all over that, that's so big you can nurse a pig. And, and I'm not talking about that kind of an emotional roller coaster. They may come. They may not come. I'm talking about the fact of getting in the presence of God and knowing it. Look at Moses. Moses met with God, get past the pig part, I don't know why I said that, but um, Moses met with God at the burning bush. It revolutionized and it reversed his entire life. He could always go back to that moment. But God didn't say, Moses, we, we had a real time together, didn't we? Don't worry about ever seeking me because we can go off that one, you graduated. No, that was, that was what helped him say, I need thee every hour. Jacob's experience at Bethel wrought such an, a change in him that God gave him a new name. The Damascus road confrontation turned Saul of Tarsus into Paul the apostle, a change so extraordinary that the Christians of that day could not accept at first that Saul is now one of us. When, they vote, when the pastor said, how many uh, would, would vote to bring Saul into the membership? All in favor say, amen. And there was no amen because they weren't so sure that Saul Saul could truly be a believer. I'm telling you, when we really meet with God, we have a genuine encounter, we're not going to be the same. Those 12 stones, they proclaimed the beginning of a new era for Israel, but it was only a beginning. The first stop had to lengthen into a walk. This aspect of the Christian experience is a major thrust of the New Testament. Paul warned the Corinthians that any religious experience which didn't result in holy living was receiving the grace of God in vain. 
receiving it in vain. The Galatians, remember we went through the book of Galatians and, and Paul's saying you had a good start, but some of you are in danger of returning back to your former religious rut. See, staying free was as much a part of their salvation as being set free. Why is it that we're having emphasis and churches like ours having an emphasis upon uh, an addictions ministry and the conquer series and the purity ministry? It's because when you got saved, you were set free, but you got entangled once again from the very things that he saved us from. Why? Because there wasn't the proper follow through. One of the most sobering statements of the Bible occurs in Philippians 2 and verse 16. You don't need to turn there. Let me read it to you. Paul, he admonished the Philippians to go on to maturity. And Paul says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now I say that's an astonishing thing to say. And here's why. The fact that they had been converted, saved, was not sufficient cause to Paul to glory when he stood before Christ. As far as he was concerned, and remember he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul's sentiments was that if they failed to follow through to maturity, his labor would be in vain. How could this be? Well, even if they didn't grow and develop, at least they would go to heaven. Surely that meant something. Not much, Paul said. I'm telling you, this, that's Paul's perspective. He felt that if his ministry to them achieved only their entrance into heaven, he might as well have stayed home. All they needed was a gospel track and they could have gotten saved. They needed discipleship so they could follow through. What use is a talent if it's in the ground? If a fig tree is without fruit? If a light is under a basket? In other words, we desperately need to rid ourselves of the false idea that Christ shed his blood simply to buy our way into heaven. When God saved us, he placed within us the blessed Holy Spirit who provides an unceasing flow of divine energy, a permanent power supply that enables us to become all God saved us to be. Number two, you still with me? The stones were the evidence of a lasting experience. Number one, the stones were to become the center of their lives. Notice in verse number 19, and the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal and the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. From the very spot in the river where the priests had stood with the ark from the heart of their experience, they took 12 stones and they placed them in their camp. And what God had done for them was to be an, an integral part of their daily lives. Gilgal, remember we mentioned Gilgal. That's the memorial site. It was to become the base of all their activities. From there, they went out to fight. 
And whether victorious or defeated, they always were to return to this sacred spot. It was to be the center of their life. And the following through, you need, I need a Gilgal. A place of remembering. The stones, like our experience, reminded the people of the faithfulness of their covenant God. It's frightening to realize how easily we forget spiritual matters. We can remember a sordid joke we heard years, of, years ago, but hard-pressed to remember what last Sunday's sermon text was. That's why the Bible frequently warns us about the dangers of forgetfulness. You thumb through the pages of Deuteronomy. I had planned for us to turn there, but I won't do it. But if you were to look through Deuteronomy, and by the way, Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in Jesus' ministry. And you see how many warnings there are. In just the 8th chapter alone, you find one in chapter 8, verse 2, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 18, verse 19. And God's people could say things like, why are you always harping on this, Moses? Why are we constantly being told not to forget? Maybe because they too often forgot. There wasn't any danger that they would forget crossing the Jordan and entering Canaan. The danger was that they would forget it had been accomplished by God's power alone. That's where the danger exists. When that happened, they would take God for granted. We heard preaching this week. They heard Jason Jett preach on the lies teenagers believe. And the first lie was that familiarity equals faith. And so many times people say, I'm, I'm familiar with God, but it's not the same as believing God. And God's people are being warned and challenged and challenged and warned because what happens is they forget that it was God's power and it was God's intervention and they would take God for granted. Remember the defeat at Ai? Joshua 7, we've all had a tendency to forget our helplessness and we've all had a tendency to forget God's omnipotence. And that leads to living the energy, living in the energy of our flesh, which in turn always leads to disaster, always. It's the spirit that quickeneth, makes alive. It's the flesh that profits nothing. You know, Jesus established a memorial for us. You know what we call it? What is it? The cross, well, that was the, the actual crisis event, but he gave us a memorial to help us remember. It's called the Lord's Supper. And it was to remember. Remember what happened at the cross. That's why we call it the memorial supper, a memorial service. Like the stones, it's a place of remembering. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember that it was for our sins, that his body was broken and that his blood was shed. Remembering the cross is a powerful deterrent for backsliding. 
Remember, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 and verse 9, he tells us that our lack of certain spiritual virtues, it proves that we have forgotten. We've forgotten that we were once purged from our old sins. If we don't establish these memorials within our life, we're going to forget. And we're going to struggle as to whether or not we actually have ever been saved. What is it about Gilgal? Why is it to become the center of our lives, this place of memorial? Because we all need a place of readjustment. Every Christian sooner or later experiences spiritual vertigo. We become disoriented. Like Joshua, we need a place where we can realign ourselves with the purpose and the will of God. Sometimes when we talk about experiencing God, sometimes it's about just pure worship. Other times it's about Sheer revival. We need some resuscitation. We need realigning. Whatever we need, we find it in experiencing God. D.L. Moody, whom you're familiar with, an evangelist of a century ago, retreated every summer to a private place where he could be alone with God, and he called it his retuning of the instrument. What was it? He was realigning himself with God. Oh, he didn't didn't do that in place of meeting with God daily, but he knew there were times he needed that concentrated dose, just like our camp was a concentrated dose. A revival meeting is a concentrated dose. A a, a discipleship meeting is a concentrated dose. A, A prayer meeting is a concentrated dose. Even amid religious activity, our hearts can grow cold. And though we may excuse ourselves because we can say we're working for the Lord, the heat of activity will never replace the warmth of communion with God. Well, how can we know we need readjusting? I think the standard by which we measure our present relationship with God is by his previous work in our life. We examine our present spiritual status in light of that past experience. I've said to several over a course of time when we sit down in a a meeting and they're asking, I don't know what's happened, I don't know what's wrong. And I will sometimes say, I remember when you gave a testimony, the, the glow of Calvary on your face, the joy of the Lord, your sensitivity to God, it's missing. And that's a great way to measure whether or not we need readjusting by letting our present spiritual status be examined in light of the past experience with God. Why don't you check yourself right now? You remember how it was, the fresh awareness of his presence? The ever-present joy, the love that seemed to flow from your fingertips, the irresistible desire to talk about him? Is it still that way? Is it more so? Or is it less? You used to be patient. Now you're touchy and irritable. Moodiness has replaced joyfulness. Worry and anxiety have replaced peace and contentment. Do you find yourself trying to live up to what you were? If so, just return to Gilgal, the place of readjustment, the place of confession, the place of forgiveness. William Cowper may have been speaking for you when he wrote, Where is the blessedness I knew when 
first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I then enjoyed. How sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void the word, excuse me, the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. Let me give you a third and last thought about these stones. The stones, the stones are a witness to others. They're to be a witness to others. Notice again in verse 24. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is mighty. The stones were the evidence of a lasting experience. The stones were to become the center of their lives. And the stones were a witness to others. It's been said that you can't meet God and not know it. That's true. I believe you meet God, you'll know it. But I believe you meet God and others will know it. Moses didn't need a glow-in-the-dark bumper sticker after coming off the mountain with God. He didn't have to carry a sign that says, I'm living in the sunshine. Badges and beads and bumper stickers are fine, but if it takes those things to show you, show others that you're a Christian, you're not much of one. We're obligated to those around us and those who come after us. Three times in Joshua 4, the people were commanded to explain the meaning of the stones when their children were asked about them. That tells me there ought to be something in our lives that cause people to ask questions about what you're experiencing. I remember just not too long ago when we started, the men started reading the Pure Desire book and, and, and started getting acquainted with some of the things concerning the Conquer series. Well, we had talked about, we're going to launch this, and we had a few of us reading the book. And it wasn't before long before half the men had already read the book before we ever launched the series because they were asking, how did this work in your life? What's God been doing in your life? Why are you keeping this a secret from us? When was the last time somebody came to you and said, I'd like to know how we can get peace in our home like you have in yours. I want to know how I can get some joy in my life like you have in yours. Usually in our witnessing efforts, the most difficult problem is how to get started and how to bring up the subject without offending somebody. Some Christians I've known, they would wear a curious looking pen, hoping somebody would say, what's that pen for? And they could jump in. And I'd say, there's nothing wrong with some of those things, but it ought to be our Christ-like life and not a pen that causes some people, if they've been around us for a while, to ask us. Now, you don't have to wait till they ask you. You can ask them. But I'm simply saying that what Joshua is doing here, what Peter is also talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, when Peter told his readers, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. See, if Jesus is Lord, be ready. 
for sooner or later, somebody's going to ask you about it. If, if God is, is involved in your life, working and experiencing God daily, be ready because somebody's going to ask you about it. While Peter was delivering his well-prepared sermon in the book of Acts, and the congregation interrupted his preaching and said, what must we do? I don't know of many preachers that would not mind being interrupted with that kind of a start to the invitation. You say, man, that must have been some preaching. Well, I think they also knew something about this man, Peter, and the transformation that had happened in their life. It's the same thing with the Philippian jailer. But here's the significant thing about these stones. They were the past reaching into the present. A present condition resulting from a past event. Every one of us, every day, ought to be able to point to some kind of memorial that's in the present tense because of a past action. Listen, it's our responsibility to bring up and remind these young people, remember what God spoke to you about at camp? Remember those testimonies? God hasn't forgotten it. And somewhere along the line, there's the tendency, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You need a Gilgal experience. You need to get back to that place of remembering those stones. We've got some young people back here that are not quite as young, but they were at camp and they gave some testimonies, but I haven't heard their testimonies in a while. But God hasn't forgotten. There's some, you've been at camp for many, many years, decades ago. God did some work in your life. God hasn't forgotten. It's a past event that is to result in a present experience. It's all right to talk about the past if there is some evidence of that past in the present. Every once in a while, I hear people say, oh, you should have been around 30 years ago. It's great. I'll tell you when it's great is when whatever it was that God did is carried over into the present. That's when it's great. It doesn't diminish the fact whether it was real. I'm telling you, however, what God does in the past of our life, he wants it to continue and it hinges on the follow through. There's nothing wrong with talking about the past. It's good to remember. It's good to recite past blessings. But here's the point. There ought to be present evidence of those past blessings. That past work of God should have been the beginning of an experience that is still going on. Before we leave this chapter, before I close this message, I want you to notice, if you will take note of what, what Joshua emphasized, and that is each tribe had a stone. This says to me that every family ought to have a memorial of God's blessings. As the head of each tribe was responsible for getting the stone, the head of each family should be able to bring a stone representing his experience with the Lord as a witness to his family. And there ought to be in his life something that makes his children ask about his experience with God. When the stones were properly placed, God said, 
they would be a witness to all the world. But of course we know if we reach the world and we lose our home, we've lost. That all the people, verse 24, look at it again, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God, say the last two words, forever. Let's, let's find the stones. Let's find where God is working. Let's establish them. And let's work at the follow through so that we don't soon forget what great things God has done. Let's stand together, please.